Hi, I'm Nyla Boodoo, host of One Big Thing from Axios. Every week, I talk to leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. We're not going to be changing the world if we don't take some risk. We can't live burying our heads. This technology is here. We're going about it the wrong way because we don't know the stuff to go for. Interviews, ideas, and context, all in 20 minutes or less. That's one big thing from Axios. Find us every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to a bonus episode of What Could Go Right. I'm Emma Varvalukas, Executive Director of the Progress Network. This episode is from a live event the Progress Network hosted in May of 2021. Take a listen. Hi, everybody. Welcome to This Changes Everything. So I'm going to introduce our uh, two illustrious network members that we're here with tonight. The first is Joan Blades. She's the co-founder of several organizations that you may have heard of, like bombsrising.org and moveon.org. She's also the co-founder of Living Room Conversations, which facilitates dialogue across divides. So, you know, if you have any trouble within your family, maybe with your neighbors or friends uh, who have opposing political points of view, opposing religious beliefs, what have you, definitely check out Living Room Conversations. They publish conversational guides uh, on a variety of fraught issues. She's also the author, uh, co-author of two books, The Custom Fit Workplace and The Motherhood Manifesto. And then our other panelists and network member here with us tonight is Steven Pinker. He's an experimental psychologist uh, currently at Harvard, and he's also taught at Stanford and MIT. He is the author of a bevy of books, most recently Enlightenment Now, which I suspect many of you in the audience are probably familiar with. And I do know that he's working on his next book on rationality. So if you look out in the world and you're thinking to yourself, why does rationality seem to be in such short supply? We're going to be looking to Stephen for answers on that soon. And then our moderator here tonight is Zachary Carabell. He's the founder of the Progress Network, also an investor and a prolific author and writer. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Zachary. Enjoy, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Emma. And uh, thank you, Stephen and John, for joining a conversation tonight. And this, uh, I guess, is the first conversation we had that is purely about ideas, which is interesting given that this is largely an idea network. Um, but most of the conversations we've had to date have been more subject-oriented rather than idea-oriented. You know, I have to say, I, I, I grew up enamored with the idea of, of a public intellectual, as you know, who weaves ideas into the warp and woof of society. And, um, you know, as much as I've lived some of that life, I'm also a little less enamored of it because it's become at least to me, um, ever more unclear what the relationship is between ideas and action or ideas and how they shape society, except at times, you know, more toxic ideas and how those can shape movements. Um, and that just may be a product of the world that we are living in, in that it's it's more evident when, you know, pernicious and toxic ideas have led to destructive movements than it is the constructive 
ideas have led to constructive movements. But I do want to delve into this and start and frame it. So there's there's a book by David Deutsch called The Beginnings of Infinity. And he is also a member of the Progress Network, you know, fascinating theoretical physicist in the UK. And he also uh, references a lot the philosopher Karl Popper and Popper's ideas about uh, progress in the future. And I just want to begin with one, um, which in many ways frames why I've tried to create this collective of people in the first place. And he writes that uh, the possibilities that lie in the future are infinite. When I say it is our duty to remain optimist, this includes not only the openness of the future, but also that which all of us contribute to it by everything we do. We are all responsible for what the future holds in store. Thus, it is our duty not to prophesy evil, but rather to fight for a better world. And what I love about that is it's basically saying, look, the future is not written. We are all of us in the process every day of writing it. And insofar as we write it with a certitude about impending doom, we we might, if you go too far in the uh, assumption that doom is impending, kind of write that doom, inscribe it into the future, which is totally different than identifying problems that are real and tractionable in the present. Uh, I don't think Popper or any of us would say that naming real problems is is in any way anything other than essential. It's the assumption that those problems are like the tip of a downward spiral and then adding fuel to that particular spiral that Popper is saying, if you have a problem, if, if there's a problem that is manifest, it is, it is our responsibility to, in an idea framework, think about what the constructive pathway is out of that. So I just wanted to frame that because in a lot of ways, that's the point of an idea network of people who are more focused on what do we do with our present and not on the assumption that our present portends a very clear, unalterable, and specific future, and that that future is grim and negative, and we're going to hell in a handbasket. Um, so with that, and with my note of kind of contemporary, what exactly do ideas do, you know, in an incredibly noisy world where every idea is jockeying for attention, um, I... I, I I guess, let me start with Stephen, just the question of how do ideas change things, actually, and do they? It's uh, intriguing to hear a physicist like David Deutsch or a philosopher of science like Popper talk about the ideas as having causal power. There is a tendency among scientists to think that uh, traditional history and uh, humanities in general deal in these kind of airy fairy things like uh, ideas and trends. And that if we really understand, want to understand human history, we have to look at the kind of things that uh, you know, a physicist can measure, like climate and resources, or at best, um, uh, economic resources, military weaponry, strategies, and power. And how could something as wispy as an idea? actually cause human history. Now, I'm a a cognitive psychologist, so I'm in the the, the science that claims to study uh, human ideas and their source, maybe the human brain, and I don't find it at all mystical that ideas could change history because ideas are patterns of activity in the brain. 
We have a means to share them, namely language. We make noise with our, our mouth. We make squiggles on a page. Ideas can jump from brain to brain. They can go viral. They can infect an entire society. People act out of their beliefs, out of their expectations. Uh, and uh, it is not only eminently possible, but it's kind of obvious that a lot of history cannot be predicted by technology, availability, resources, climate, uh, anything else. Things happen. Uh, Marxism becomes popular. Uh, abolitionism becomes uh, popular. Christianity becomes popular. I don't think anyone could have predicted any of that from the climate, but there's nothing mystical about it when you have a cognitive creature such as ourselves that lives by shared norms and values and, uh, and, and uh, shared knowledge. So there is the scope for ideas to, to change history. And as um, uh, Deutsch said, echoing Popper, the space of conceivable ideas is so so vast, it's a combinatorial explosion. You could have one idea that could combine with any of 10 other ideas, which in turn could combine with any of uh, 10 other ideas. The set of ideas out there is, uh, is, is literally mind boggling. By being cognitive creatures that can explore the realm of ideas, of formulas, of recipes, of algorithms, of hypotheses, then the future, although I don't know if technically it's infinite, it is for all intents and purposes infinite. There are solutions out there to many of our problems. There's no guarantee that we'll blunder our way into solving them. But the more we can direct our search in the space of possible ideas, the uh, likelier it is that we will uh, find such solutions. Um, John, I want you to use that as a jumping off because you've focused a lot on this question of to make the statement it's up to each of us to write that future or to to sort of build on what Stephen is saying as well assumes a degree of we all have agency right we all have some degree of capacity in whatever sphere you know small large middle circle to shape that uh, but uh, but I think you've experienced that not everyone believes that they that they have that agency right um, so how does one inculcate that? I wish I had the answer to that, but, uh, you know, one of the interesting things about this conversation is one of the first things I end up talking about in a more academic setting is the science that says facts don't convince people. Because we keep thinking that we're rational beings and we are capable of being rational beings, but most people are first and foremost emotional beings, which means our context is much more predictive of our beliefs than individual exploration and understanding by and large. So, you know, whereas we like to think that we go based upon our excellent judgment, it just, in so many cases, it's the context of your social setting that is going to be most predictive of what you believe and what you do. And believing that we have agency is essential in my and my hopes is, and that's, you know, people feel so uh, 
there's a learned helplessness that we've all got. Uh, it feels so impossible sometimes to make changes when it seems like there are obstacles that are so much bigger than us. And we do have to create our future. I'm, I'm a passionate believer that that's right. And so finding the ways to help make it so people own the future and see how critical they are to creating it is you know, kind of why I've headed in the direction I've headed. You know, as a founder of Move On, I've seen you know, the political space where each side is trying to overwhelm the other for a couple decades now. And it's, I'm identifying it as a wrecking ball of sorts where if we are going to come to real progress, solutions, we actually have to have everyone's best ideas in the room. And we have to have the agility that is created when you have a relationship that has some trust and respect so that you can do more of what's working and less of what's not and not just get in a defensive pose. So I probably answered that in a a couple of ways, maybe I, not quite how you want it. I don't know. I, I, I want to get back to the being in a room, but I also, Stephen, I know you want to jump in, but I also want to push you for a minute, Stephen, because I think in uh, in a lot of your work where you've laid out a kind of a fact pattern for a certain amount of human progress, um, and if I'm mischaracterizing anything, just just tell me I'm, I am. Um, I think at times it, it has it has uh, surprised you and and bothered you the degree to which so many people, as Joanne said, react emotionally to a world as opposed to factually to a world. And so you can you can give them chapter and verse of all these things and people will still say, yeah, well, I don't I don't feel that. I don't feel that there's, you know, maybe there's less police violence statistically, even though we're seeing it all the time, right? Because we didn't have body cams, we didn't have cell phones 40 years ago. So what, what do you do about that? Because you've tried to make a kind of a a rationalist argument for positive change. And a lot of people kind of responded with an emotional negation of that, saying, well, okay, fine, but I don't feel it. Yeah. Well, uh, Joan, even in downplaying the extent to which we deploy rationality so that people are capable of it, and a major theme of my, my next book called Rationality is, yeah, people are capable of it, and they do it all the time in their everyday lives. You know, we're not so emotional that, you know, when the fridge is empty, we think, oh, it so sucks that I have no food in the fridge. I really hate that. I'm going to wish there to be food. You know, we really go out to the grocery store. We buy the food. We bring it back. We put gas in the car when the tank is empty. We clothe the kids. We get them to school on time. We couldn't do any of those things if we were utterly incapable of irrationality, if we just surrender to our emotions and to, to wishful thinking and to hoping that the world will be the way we, we want it to be. There is a zone in life in which we are completely rational, and that's how we you know, transformed the planet and had technology and science and medicine and all the rest. The thing is that there are other zones where we are not, the, the whole enlightenment and scientific revolution hasn't really sunk in when it comes to things like you know, deep history and metaphysics and what happens in remote corridors of power and how the microscopic processes work, where if we don't see them with our own eyes, if they don't affect our day-to-day -day life, 
they're kind of in a zone of more of mythology than of factual reality, where beliefs are evaluated in terms of how uplifting they are, how um, energizing they are to your coalition, how much they glorify your side and demonize the other side. Because until the scientific revolution, we kind of had no way of knowing anyway. Uh, you know, what happened 10,000 years ago? How do atoms work? How do bacteria work? No one could find out. And so it didn't matter really what, what you thought in terms of how you lived your life, but you could have uh, theories of them that you shared among your within your tribe that could make your tribe look good, that could uh, embolden them to stand up to its enemies. And I think a lot of that psychology is still with us. And so what we have to do is look at the border between the zones in which people uh, are driven by their uh, by uplifting myths as opposed to empirical facts uh, and, and try to push the boundaries so that more and more of what people already treat rationally uh, is encompassed by, by that mindset. And there are studies that show that you really can, even with highly politicized issues, it is true that people can be completely uh, mule-headed. They can simply ratify what makes their own political party, their own religion look good. But there, there, also, there is uh, flexibility. People, when they see a graph, will often change their mind. When they're even told, I get into a, a skeptical mindset, do you think this is really true or not? Uh, they can... Uh, exercise that kind of skepticism, and it can uh, extend to other beliefs. Now, it doesn't happen enough, but the capability does exist. Yeah, I'm not suggesting for a minute that it doesn't exist. I'm suggesting no, that, that um, yeah. facts don't convince people until you, until you have a connection. If someone that I distrust tells me something, it just totally passes me by. And persuasion, perversely enough, is much less effective at changing people's views than really listening and asking some good questions and developing that connection where you have an exchange where trust and relationship builds. That's actually where I was going to with that. It's, right. Yeah. yeah, my... The quintessential, you know, example of the need for having that relationship to be able to make progress, you know, to be an effective actor is, you know, I'm focused on U.S. political situation. If, you know, everybody woke up in D.C. tomorrow morning with whatever your top issue is as their top priority. And, you know, for me, climate change is way up there. I do not think it would mean that our leadership would be particularly effective because I look at healthcare where we've had affordable, high quality healthcare as a priority for decades. And we've got the most expensive healthcare in the world. And it's not even in the top 10 when it comes to outcomes. So it's, you know, it's that combination of, creating good human dynamics that allows the facts then to be incredibly effective. But we, we tend to want to skip that human part and go right to the, the facts, and then we don't get anywhere. Hey, it's Emma. 
They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with Everything Everywhere Daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Everywhere Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. I couldn't agree more that trust is essential in kind of aligning conventional wisdom to our best understanding of the truth. Because studies of people who disagree on politicized issues like climate change and evolution show that the people who are what we would consider to be on the, on the right side of the issue, they do really do believe that human activity is warming the planet. If you probe their understanding of, of, um, of climate change, they're, they're out to lunch. I mean, they this is our, our fellow... Um, climate change acceptors, the average person will say, well, it has something to do with maybe the ozone hole, and, you know, maybe if we cleaned up toxic waste dumps and stopped throwing plastic straws in the ocean, that is a sort of general sense of, of green being good and pollution being bad. The reason that uh, people end up on the on what I think we would consider to be the, the correct side of this issue is if they trust the people who actually do have the apparatus that that's hypotheses for the best claim of being true. If you, you trust those people and you don't trust the, 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 the AM talk radio hosts, the celebrities, um, then your opinion will tend to align more with the truth, even if you yourself um, really have a shallow comprehension of scientific facts, which is true of almost everyone. Although, yeah. you know, this gets to the, this gets to the challenge of, um, <laughs> for most of history, and certainly most of history when it came to ideas, ideas were things that, that elites had that either others were told to embrace um, or were not really given much voice in the embracing of that. You know, religion certainly was, was the grandest set of ideas. I'm not, this is not a debate about, you know, whether or not there's ultimate spiritual truth in that. I'm just saying religion as articulated as a series of ideas that were written down and transmitted in exactly the way Stephen talked about. Um, we have been acutely aware, I think, in recent years of, you know, ideas that have become destructive, right? Or, or ideas that have turned into global movements that have had, at best, a mixed legacy. And you know, we talk about Marx as a great 19th century intellectual. It happened to be that Marx also gives birth to a whole series of of political movements, um, some of which on maybe on the more socialist side have have had a constructive legacy, and some of which on the more authoritarian communist side have had a largely destructive one. 
But we don't talk as much today about uh, constructive idea movements, right? Uh, and, and, we, and we don't seem to focus as much on the absence of those constructive idea movements as being potentially uh, limiting. And I, and I wonder if maybe some of it has to do with the, the democratization part, right? We don't want to listen to elites. We, meaning all of us, even elites don't want to listen to each other. Um, I mean, what does one do about that? I mean, I, I think ideas are, you know, everything we talk about started with a set of ideas. Everybody talks about the Constitution, right? It's just a set of ideas about how society should organize that was then implemented. It wasn't implemented and then an idea, you know, fleshed it out. Um, so I don't know. I mean, Joan, you, you've been more engaged, I think, in the in helping people navigate conflict right or to some degree now and before you know i mean move on was certainly how do you how do you turn a passion and an idea and a perspective into a, a political force right with move on um it actually started around a one sentence petition during the clinton impeachment scandal with monica Lewinsky. It was censured the president move on to pressing issues facing the nation. And you could hate Clinton or love Clinton and agree that the best thing for the country was to do that. At that time, I thought polarization was just terrible. <laughs> and now that looks relatively good to me. So it was actually, a, you know, we had thousands of Republicans signing that initial petition. And so that was our viral moments have been around things that are pretty unifying uh, and positive, honestly. It was the Clinton impeachment scandal. And then the next was, you know, let the inspections work, asking, you know, trying to avoid the Iraq war. And one of the fascinating things about that and something that still breaks my heart is I think that was the largest anti-war movement in the history of the world, worldwide. Hmm. And we did not succeed. We have, that's something I want to figure out. And I think one of the things, you know, the, the place I am right now is I believe we need to be in right relationship with people we disagree with. When we start seeing people as other, I don't even want to talk to them, then that's a very dark path that you start going down. Bad things happen on that path. And uh, finding ways to create more nuance and understanding, I think, is the first step. And so... Honestly, I'm very happy if people talk about anything. We have a technology and relationships conversation where the big difference there is age. And uh, I am, you know, we have intergenerational conversations. We have political conversations. We have race and ethnicity conversations. And wherever people are ready, we have a conversation on money and values. You have a book coming out. And it's a great place to allow people to be intentional and get in touch with what are their deeper values around whatever. We have over a hundred topic guides, all of them reviewed by diverse people so that they'll be as welcoming across the political or other spectrums as possible. It's, it's interesting, Stephen, 
what Jen says about what she's trying to do, create these sort of forum for ideas, right? Which in, in many ways should be in, at least in theory, is the, one of the places where that, that's supposed to exist is in higher education. We had a forum a, a month ago on the nature of higher education today. Um, do you feel those conversations are still uh, at home in academia? You know, where like, people have genuinely heated, presumably, um, non-agreements about those things, you know, about privacy and technology, about ethnicity and race and the role, about all the things you've just described, Jen, right? These are not kumbaya discussions. These are people grappling with difference. Um, so some are kumbaya discussions. And that, right. I'm good but with them too. Yeah. Well, you could also have a kumbaya discussion of difference. But is, is the university, do ideas still have a home in the university? Uh, in a lot of uh, topics, yes. In some, absolutely not. And there are some issues that are just not discussable in a university, and it, for that matter, in our mainstream uh, journalistic outlets. And I think uh, I think we don't know what they are, and uh, perhaps a, a sign of how taboo many of them are that I'm skittish about mentioning them because mentioning them is uh, can be tantamount to uh, endorsing a position in them. Uh, although you, uh, Zachary, mentioned one in passing, and I, which, which uh, uh, I won't repeat, but those of you who have sufficient uh, um, uh, radar will have uh, picked it up. Uh, but um, Joan's suggestion that if we open up forums to honest exploration of ideas, then one hopes that they go in a constructive direction. And it raises the issue of, is there any kind of directionality to the world of ideas themselves, such that if disagreements are aired, if hypotheses can be tested, then uh, in the long run, the, the, the truth will win out, or at least we'll, we'll approach the truth, even though we'll never get there, we'll never realize we get there, but ideas, our ideas will get better and better. And in some ways, such a science, that, that is clearly true. We really do understand how life works and how uh, object, matter works better than our, um, our ancestors. When it comes to uh, political change and societal change, there it's a, a tougher question to answer. One could say that there are certain ideas that once they're opened up, they will tend to move in a certain direction. They have a, they have a kind of momentum. So for example, the philosopher Peter Singer in his book, The Expanding Circle, suggests that there is, as long as ideas can be aired and shared and, dis and discussed, there'll be an expansion in the, in the circle of, uh, of concern, of empathy, of sympathy, that uh, a process was set in motion. As soon as the <clears throat> Greek, uh, as soon as the philosophers of the Greek city-state said, well, we should be nice not just to our fellow Athenians, but to all Greeks. Well, then why not, you know, all Europeans? And then, you know, why not all Caucasians? And then why not all human beings? And then why not all, why not uh, uh, women as well as men? Why not gay as well as straight? Uh, why not sentient creatures other than humans? And there is a, a kind of self-inflating property to that kind of idea. There may be others that we're in the, in the midst of where we're seeing drugs being decriminalized. There are movements to decriminalize uh, sex work. Uh, and the change in our laws from criminalizing consensual activity because they violate some intuition of purity or normality. Uh, maybe another case where the ideas will take on a, a life of their own. The expansion of rights to transgender people just in the last few years as a kind of natural extension of the extension of rights to, to uh, gay people. There may be other, it's not at all clear that 
in other realms that ideas will have their own directionality. And I've had a, um, a friendly disagreement with political scientist um, John Mueller over trends that both of us have recognized, the decline of war and the spread of democracy. I have cited a literature that tries to look for antecedents to those trends. What is it that made war, the number of the lethality of wars decline? What made democracy spread? And there are political scientists who will feed variables into equations to say, see if, for example, uh, affluent countries are more likely to become democratic or better educated uh, people, people with a longer, uh, more ethnically homogeneous in the case of war, does interst interstate commerce facilitate uh, peace and disincentivize war? Do, do democracies, are democracies less likely to go to war? I've uh, cited this literature and, and John says, uh, you know, the, the main cause of uh, war becoming less popular is that the idea of war went out of style. Likewise, the reason that democracy spread was people started to think that democracies were a good idea. And I said, well, isn't that uh, just saying war became less popular because uh, people disliked the idea of war. Isn't that kind of unsatisfying as a cause and effect explanation? And he said, yeah, that is, that's kind of what I'm, what I'm saying. Uh, and I said, well, do we expect like war to make a comeback? And he said, well, do you expect the bustle to make a comeback? Uh, he, I think at least on some days of the week, he's willing to push the idea or the meta idea that ideas are like fashions they come into vogue, they go out of vogue, there may not be much rhyme or reason. We can do what, what we want to stop kids from wearing their baseball caps with the brim on the, on the, in the back or to stop getting them uh, tattooed. Uh, but resistance is futile, that, that uh, changes just happen by an internal dynamic. And I'm not sure if he's believed that uh, thesis of history in that strong a form, but it is something that we have to contend with. We do know that there are some changes in, we call them fashion or style, that really are unpredictable. They, they're, they're literally viral. There's no algorithm for having a, a viral TikTok video or a viral meme. Some people are, are, are lucky. Maybe they had what it takes, but we can only identify it after it's taken place. Let's hope that it is not that arbitrary and that there are certain kinds of uh, directionalities to ideas that we can then encourage by providing, by making reasons for them clearer. So, Joan, in, in response to some of that, you, you've created these living room conversations with the goal of, you know, explain it, like the, the goal of bringing people together to talk about these things is dot, 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 what? Is to build skills for having good, healthy conflict, you know, good listening skills. Uh, the power of listening is remarkable and easy to forget, to have relationships with people that they might not otherwise, so that they do expand their circle of care. And the conversations are designed to be massively reproducible so that you know, 10,000 people could choose to host living room conversations in a weekend because you know the goal is ultimately to be a society where we have norms of valuing each other and finding ways to live with each other in the most productive and, you know, 
good future looking way possible. That's the dream. Well, that's kind of hard to argue with. Yeah, I, mean, I think so. I, I, I mean, I guess we, we we could. I mean, otherwise, it's like Stephen and, and John Muir are beginning into like fistfights over their their disagreements about the the reasons for the decline of of war. Um, but are there ideas? I, I don't want to like you know unnecessarily plunge into whatever hot button stuff. But I mean, are there ideas that that shouldn't be discussed? I mean, yes, like you probably shouldn't discuss whether the Holocaust was a good thing or a bad thing, right? That's, that, that is probably not a discussion that has a fruitful outcome. Um, there are people, it's unlikely people of goodwill would be attracted to that conversation. Right. The, the problem is once you get out of the few things that we can all kind of go, yeah, that's right. You know, we're not, there's, there's not a one hand on the other hand on that particular set of issues. Um, where the lines of like acceptable ideas and unacceptable ideas gets drawn end up being part of the reason why people can't have these conversations in the first place, right? Because people draw those lines very differently. I mean, it's even just, it's very hard for a set of evolutionists and a set of, uh, you know, a set of creationists and a, and a set of, of evolutionary scientists to get into a room together. This is and a, have one, a, I don't know. This is a one step at a time kind of, experience. You know, we now have conversation pathways. We actually um, have a conversation called Encountering Controversial Ideas in Higher Education, which is because there is this question of what's appropriate. And it's not for anyone to say this is what's appropriate. It's for people to reflect on what their own values are and hear other people's values and start to get what the opportunities and what the dynamics that are that cause us to have challenges in this area. So it's not the destination, but it's, it's interesting about point. so about what's acceptable and what's not. So if you think about uh, only once uh, large swaths of society became more secular. Uh, was it easier to have what we would now call interfaith dialogues where in you know, a different faith could sit down and go, look, I don't agree that, you know, the Quran is this, and I don't necessarily agree that the Bible is that, or the Upanishads are this. And, and there's been incredibly fruitful interfaith dialogues over the past 50, 60 years by religious leaders of faiths that are, at least in theory, kind of inimical to one another. I mean, if you're saying I have the only truth and you're saying I have the only truth, that's why you have wars of religion because there's not a lot of give there. Once the war part was taken out of the equation, people start having really, really interesting conversations. In our worlds today, that same intensity is reserved for some cultural issues and a lot of political ones. Um, and I mean, is, is that, and, and Stephen, you've tried to basically say, uh, we can all have heated debates over, uh, you know, politics and life and what we think, but we shouldn't be having heated debates over facts, right? So if you're, if you're telling me that everything has gotten worse in the following way, and I can show you factually that it hasn't, that should be a starting ground. Um, but what about people who say, I don't believe that? Well, I would, uh, you know, if that's what they say, then, um, I can, I can do my best to persuade them with facts and they would have every right to question the facts, the, the, the um, reliability and completeness of the, of the data, uh, their scope. 
Uh, it's, it's more, the, the problem is more if they say you are a, uh, you know, a fascist or you are evil for saying that. And and, right. and I'm going to fire you for saying that. That's really where the problem comes. So yeah. let me, let me, let me. Look, let me let me try to push a little further on this. Uh, I live in New York right now, and and over the past six months, there's been an increasing kind of tension between those who perceive the reality of this city right now, where there there are in fact more shootings, there's a, a rising gun violence. Um, but if you show someone a statistic put out by the New York City Police Department, break breaking it down by every known crime. I'm not saying this is fun reading. I'm just saying if you do this and you look at 1980, 1990, 2000, 2010, 2015, 2020, um, you know, we're kind of back to about 2015, just in terms of statistical realities of these things. And it's like so far beyond the levels that were true in 1990, meaning there's like so much less crime. And this, this would be true in the Bay Area relative to you know, the mean streets of San Francisco, if you're in Boston and the combat zone. But if you tell people that who are convinced now that New York has become a, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're like tripping over homeless people at every corner and you're going to get shot if you go to Times Square, like I, it's like all the, all the stats in the world don't seem to penetrate a widely held perception. I, I don't know if they would in a living room conversation. Yeah. Like, well, what does well, it do about that? Yeah, no, it is. I, I think it is a vital issue because there was a, um, I think, a failure to acknowledge the huge uh, burst of, of violent crime in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, which only began to turn, uh, turn around in the, in the 90s. There's uh, another faction has not really acknowledged the great American crime decline, crime decline in the 1990s, and then another group after 2006, 2007, or for that matter, the fact that there's been a pretty noticeable uptick in the past year, in the year 2020, rates of violent crime increased by uh, 25 to 30% in a number of cities. You're right, it doesn't bring us back up to 1992, from which crime declined 50 to 75%. So it hasn't completely done a U-turn, but it has done a partial U-turn in the past year, and that's an uncomfortable fact that a lot of people would rather not know about. The, uh, so what do we do about people being you know, whipsawed by uh, having their conventional wisdom upset by data nerds who said, well, who say uh, you're worried about increasing crime, but it's gone down, or you're complacent about crime, but it's gone up. Uh, I personally think that journalism should uh, be more aware of the way that they uh, systematically spread disinformation by the reporting of vivid stories and anecdotes tying into what cognitive psychologists call the availability bias. Namely, if there is a vivid example that you can readily call to mind, you think it's everywhere. You, that, that's, how, that's our shortcut to judging frequency. And of course, it works in everyday life in a lot of day-to-day uh, -day context. It doesn't work when you've got a machine, namely journalism, that gives a highly non-random sample of the most dramatic, the most violent, the most colorful uh, events of the day. Now, I, I, in order to have more of a, a culture that is rooted in actual trends, developments, both positive and negative, when they occur, uh, I would like to see journalism move, take a, a leaf out of the page of the, the, the sports section or the weather section or the business section and have a 
continually updated dashboard of major indicators of the world. What is the crime rate this year? How, when you report a, uh, a crime like a school shooting, a police shooting, a terrorist attack, why not uh, show a graph of the uh, trends in, uh, in homicide over the last like, 10, 20, 30 years? Why not indicate the relative risk of dying from various causes and uh, continually update it? Why don't we have a continually updated graph on greenhouse gas emissions? on violence against women, on violence against children, instead of a particular event where a one child was kidnapped or one child was uh, was beaten. Now, I know a lot of journalists say, oh, well, people, you'll never sell papers that way. You'll never get eyeballs and clicks. People hate numbers. They want pictures. They want stories. But, you know, the sports section does fine with, with numbers, with, <clears throat> with tables every single day, chock full of numbers. The business pages uh, do. The, the weather uh, section does, it would be far more responsible if the mission of journalism was much more rooted in data and trends and that the events of the day were put into context of those overall patterns. Hey, everybody. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote. Nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's a time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. but Hot labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. (laughs) (laughs) We we hear that. (laughs) Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. That may be a Mark Twain quote, but it's just as true today as when he originally said it. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is a podcast that compares and contrasts history to the current events of today. Host Bruce Carlson has recently done deep dives on fascinating topics like the fall of the Soviet Union, which sets the stage for today's geopolitics, the man who was in prison and still won a million votes for the presidency, and the mystery behind George Washington's involvement, or lack thereof, in the Bill of Rights. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics offers deep context to all these historic stories, especially those that you may think you know well, and is particularly adept at relating them to current events. So don't miss out. Listen to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on all platforms. If I am, uh, if you're moderating a discussion, Joan, where, so taking my, my, my contemporary, and this is not just true of New York, it's true of a whole bunch of places. Um, and it's true in the flip side of everybody's moving to Miami, right? That's like, just everybody's moving to Miami. And if you were to sit in a room with people going, you know, everybody's moving to Miami and Austin and, and you were, had someone living there going, actually, that's not my experience that everyone's moving here. There are a few people moving here or crime 
and you know that 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 um, urban areas after the pandemic that were really rigidly shut down, like New York or San Francisco or Boston, are crime-ridden, you know, homeless-laden, drug abuse. Yeah, uh, like every two blocks, you you have to duck for cover. If if two people came into your into one of the conversations that you're trying to create those tools for and had very night and day experiences of the same lived reality, how, how do you help them bridge that? I mean, it's one, I, I can listen to it. I can hear the other perspective. So a living room hear- conversation is a very structured conversation. It's not freeform and it's not facilitated. It's the facilitation is the structure. Um, so, you know, we have a guns and responsibility living room conversation. And you'll notice it's not gun control, it's not gun safety, it's guns and responsibility, which fits a broader audience. And we've had people with radically different experiences sit down and have that conversation. The questions they're asked, as soon as we get into the data points, people go into their political trance and you know, when's the last time anyone's persuaded someone that has a really different viewpoint than them? It's it's not something I hear about, honestly. But what happens when people listen to each other's stories and talk about, you know, what's been your experience with guns? How did you first learn about them? Is they start to gain a, a feeling for where other people are coming from. And it's a time to just listen to different viewpoints. And then the close is reflection on what you've listened to and next steps. And it's not about solving a problem. It's not about persuasion. It's about starting to build that connection, understanding nuance. Because, you know, anything that's significant in terms of our differences isn't going to get taken care of in a single conversation. I mean, it's about us becoming more owning our own piece of the puzzle. So can I ask you a question? In, in these structured conversations, it does, assuming that there's a facilitator or a mediator, do they say there isn't? Okay. No. But at, what, at what point can, can someone say, um, uh, let's go to Wikipedia or let's go to our world of data. So that if someone says, well, my, you know, my aunt was killed by an illegal immigrant who ran her over on a street corner. So we've really got to keep these Mexicans out of the country. And they could give a, a, a heartrending story about how awful it is to have your aunt killed by an illegal immigrant. But that really, and, and perhaps that would persuade people, yes, we've got to build a wall. We don't really want that to happen. And uh, it's not going there. That's not the, I mean, the container is really very, um, it's a structure that's about listening to people's personal stories and not to data. After the conversation, people can go to data, they can go to freeform conversation. We had a conversation, I was part of a conversation in Utah a number of years ago about climate. And the conversation went till nine and then people had to be kicked out at 11 because they hadn't had the chance to talk across the differences they were exposed to in that conversation. But the conversation itself created that first 
part of the, the connection. And then people are able to carry it on in whatever way it makes sense for them. Then you want to go to that. Can I, can I press you on that? Because it sure. seems to me that individual conversations and individual lived experience can actually be a rather misleading way to make the kind of collective decisions that we have to make in a democracy. You know, if someone were to say, well, my you know, my cousin got inoculated, but he got COVID anyway, and I've gone out without a mask, and I, I look at me, I'm fine. You could delve into people's lived experiences and come up with a, a highly misleading uh, set of opinions on policy if you're swayed by the emotions who've undergone of, of one guy who's undergone one event. How do you prevent that from happening? From it just being the decision whoever's in that room at that time. It's not a decision-making process. It doesn't pretend to be. We have faith communities, libraries, bookstores, having, and many of them do the conversations monthly. And so it's about building a, you know, a deepening experience of connecting with people that have very different views and starting to understand what it is people, how people are seeing things. And people almost never totally change their viewpoint. You know, we had the immigration conversation and it was just what we needed to see afterwards. It wasn't people had changed how they saw what was going on with immigration all together, but they started to see each other's viewpoint and have some appreciation for it. I mean, this is one step at a time. We're not going to solve big problems in a single 60 or 90 minute conversation. We're going to start having the connections. And then you may go to a facilitated process where you do bring in data or you put it, you bring together a citizen's jury. There's, this is, you know, inviting the missing, some missing voices, starting to get curious, nurturing the growth of trust and connection and nuance. And then it it goes where it needs to go from there. Living room conversations are not the destination, but an, a really rich place to start. And I think this is, I mean, you know, part of what you're doing is, is so vital because uh, so much of of the world that we are in is is very specific outcome oriented and not process oriented. Um, and if you've got the wrong process, it's hard to get to the right outcome, which scientists know all the time, right? Uh, but we don't think about that in terms of how do we sort of collectively problem solve or how do we translate uh, ideas and in opposition into some degree of cohesion uh, because we're so focused on the outcome and and so we've kind of we've underinvested in process, as it were. Um, educationally, collectively, individually. So there are a whole bunch of questions, although frankly, a lot of them we have dealt with about uh, from from the Q&A from the audience about, you know, what do you do about facts? What do you do about people trusting sources? You know, that's a whole, and we've we've touched on that. Um, I want to ask you both one question then take a couple of these questions specifically. Actually, what I'll do is I will end, I will ask you that question as an end thing. One question, which is, I think for both of you, is uh, I mean, it's phrased by the, by the questioners, what does the average person do um, to try to contribute to this kind of arc of progress or, or constructiveness? I suppose one thing would be to join a living room conversation. But in addition to that, you know, what do you both think about? Not everyone's in the, you know, in, in the idea business. 
So I think the question is more, you know, what can one do if one is not doing that professionally? Yeah, I would like to see a, uh, we all have certain uh, norms that proliferate through a society that are, uh, are not terribly controllable from the top down, but happen and often in a benevolent uh, direction. When I was a teenager, ethnic jokes were, were, were quite popular, including on broadcast television. Uh, Rowan and Martin's Latin would have recurring jokes that, that uh, uh, made fun of what, how, how stupid uh, Polish Americans were. That would be you know, really un- unthinkable today. No one legislated it, but it did happen in terms of just what, what a decent person said, uh, can, uh, does or says in public. You know, ideally, we'd have that, those kinds of norms value active open-mindedness, being willing to listen to opinions that you disagree with, being willing to go to the data to uh, settle disputes, as opposed to kind of war of all against all, uh, uh, of, of prosecuting the argument that is most likely to get your side to win as, as a kind of norm of ordinary conversation. Uh, how to do that is a question like, how do we get people to uh, get tattoos or to stop getting tattoos? There's a certain amount of grassroots proliferation that we can't control, but each of us can do our part by uh, a little bit of a nudge in that direction. Joan, I, I assume part of, I, I, sh- I shouldn't assume, but you've, you've answered some of that in terms of, of uh, learning to engage. Uh, the work I'm doing right now is all about trying to create new societal norms. You know, honoring the divinity of everyone is what I've learned from my faith communities. You know, it's, I think of it more as human dignity, respect, and how to have healthy conflict. So, yeah, I'm very much at the relationship process point, And I believe that the solutions, sometimes they appear in a conversation. But often it's just the entry point to being ready to go and start work on solutions in a way that might actually work. As opposed to right now, I think we're doing a very poor job of creating solutions because we haven't done this work of being deeply committed to each other on some level, even when we disagree. So I'm going to ask you both the uh, the $64,000 end question. Uh, does a belief in the idea of progress uh, a necessary prerequisite to the reality of progress and progress, you know, defined, I think, as we would all try to define it, which is in, in whatever definitional sense um, that tomorrow shows material, spiritual, individual movement in a positive sense over today, you know, collectively, individually, globally, you name it. But I guess it's an interesting question. There was a, a long period of time in the 19th century where most people believed that progress was this inchoate thing that we were creating. Uh, I think increasingly fewer people believe that today, at least certainly in the Western world, certainly in the United States. Is that belief a necessary prerequisite to progress or can progress happen even under conditions of great kind of conflict and contention and maybe even some degree of uh, despair? 
well, it's been said that optimism is a self-fulfilling prophecy and pessimism is a self-fulfilling prophecy. So certainly if you think that it's that it's futile to uh, improve conditions, if the system is just so corrupt and decadent that it's due to collapse and we may as well give it a push because anything that rises out of the rubble is better than what we have now, then you probably won't uh, work for uh, to, to find solutions and to persuade people that they're, they're valuable and, and to implement them. You'll be more likely to want to smash the machine or just um, uh, eat, drink, and, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Just Let's just have a good time because there's nothing we can do to, to uh, forestall disaster. On the other hand, the, the 19th century idea that progress is a, is a thing, it's a, the natural way, uh, could not be more wrong. There's, there's no force in the universe that just carries us ever upward that makes things better and better. Quite the contrary, the, the laws of the universe try to grind us down. And here I've been influenced by David Deutsch, who you uh, referenced at the beginning of our conversation, who noted that said that uh, unless uh, a uh, state of affairs is ruled out by the laws of physics, it is attainable given the right knowledge. It doesn't happen by itself. Problems are inevitable. But problems are solvable and solutions create new problems, which then must be solved in their turn. If we have that kind of mindset, yeah, there are unquestionably problems. And if we don't identify them, we won't know what to solve. We won't know when we've solved them. So we do have to be completely cognizant of injustice and suffering and disaster wherever they occur, the better that we look for solutions. But we have to um, realize that solutions exist and it's a question of finding them to give us the uh, energy and the perseverance and the uh, motive to persuade others in order that the, the problems uh, be solved. That's for me. Optimism is my preference by far, and there's always going to be a mix of it out there. And the more we can <laughs> be bending towards the optimism, I think it leads towards more progress. Um, but we do have some dynamics in our media right now that push towards fear, anger, and anxiety. And that's why we have to, we have to start owning our media and owning our way of being in the world, because that's the part we do have control of. And so it starts with us. And optimism is, you know, by far and away a lot more fun. And, you know, there's there's an element of it that I've also felt where, uh, and, and it, you know, giving a nod again to Deutsch, um, but that optimism is also inherently somewhat more humble because it it it, it allows for the openness of future outcomes, uh, and pessimism doesn't. You know, you know, pessimism has a certitude to it. And, I, you know, kind of back to, to Stephen's point, in, in a world being shaped by humans and not by some master plan of design, so the progress is like this ineluctable force pushing us forward willy-nilly, um, the humbleness about future outcomes and the knowledge that, you know, everything we do now is, is part and parcel of what that will be, uh, I think is also radically important in a world where you know, it's too easy just in a media and political culture to rise above the noise and the fray by table thumping one's inherent rightness, um, which is the opposite of humbleness. So as much as I, I, I celebrate everything, you know, 
that this collective that I'm trying to assemble is doing, it's all very much in the spirit of none of us really know. Um, and none of us have a, a soul access to the truth, you know, capital T, capital T. Um, and I do think optimism is a, it, it, you know, at best it reflects the unfolding as opposed to, I know what is, and I know what will be. And there's very little give in the latter. And I hope that there's a lot of give in the former. We are at our time. Um, I've tried to address as many of the questions. Again, a lot of these, a lot of the questions in the conversation actually flowed very nicely into our conversation. I recognize this was an amorphous conversation, which is probably totally appropriate given the amorphous nature of ideas, which are, you know, they're like pebbles on a pond. You throw them in, the ripples go out. You don't know when they're going to hit the hither shore, but you know for certain that they will. And uh, that's the best one can hope from good ideas. And you are both exemplary propagators of wonderful ideas and great processes. And, and thank you for joining the Progress Network. And thank you for joining me tonight. And thank you, as always, to Emma Varvalukas for leading all of this. To find out more information about the Progress Network and what could go right, visit theprogressnetwork.org. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter to stay up to date with everything happening with the Progress Network. If you like the show, please tell a friend, share an episode, or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. What Could Go Right is hosted by Zachary Carabell and me, Emma Varvalukas. We're produced by Andrew Steven. Jordan Aaron is our production coordinator, executive produced by Jeff Ambro and the Podglomerate. Thanks so much for listening.